Perhaps the most terrifying aspect of identifying mental distress and then seeing a therapist is the possibility that we might really have a serious problem. If we admit what we really think and feel, are they going to be shocked? Are they going to send us away, declare us unfit? What if I'm crazy? We wonder in our beds in the middle of the night, unable to sleep. Walt Whitman famously wrote in Song of Myself, I contain multitudes. Welcome to the Vanessa Londino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Londino. Psychobabble and pop psychology won't help you heal and grow. Real information will. And I make it my goal each and every week to bring you real, down-to-earth, pertinent information you can use for the week ahead. Today we're going to focus on a question I get all the time in therapy sessions, and I'm going to talk through one of the primary reasons people ask me this. And the question is this, am I crazy? Or some version of that. I hear, do I sound crazy? Or sometimes people just diagnose themselves. I'm crazy, right? Because of the way the medical and psychiatric communities have defined mental illness, people are constantly afraid that they have a disease. In fact, some of us justify terrible behavior with the excuse of having a mental disease. Now, I'm not discrediting the legitimate difficulty some of us have functioning day to day, okay? But I think we all know what I mean. A mental health diagnosis has become both a stigma and an excuse. Neither of these are healthy for the individual. It is far healthier to normalize our coping mechanisms, and it is far healthier to hold ourselves accountable for health and recovery from mental illness. Now, I'm not necessarily blaming medicine, namely psychiatry, for this way of seeing and talking about mental illness. I do believe that doctors and specialists mean well. But ultimately, we've stigmatized and pathologized, and that means we've marked something as bad or sick, adaptive human coping mechanisms. And now people who struggle with anything, from feeling anxious to intrusive thoughts, are constantly afraid that their genetics have rendered them vulnerable to a mental disease or mental illness. So today we're going to throw labels where they belong, which is in the garbage. I am not a label. You are not a label. You are a sacred human being. And the word sacred just means set apart, okay? You are on the difficult and wondrous journey of being a human being and being alive. So like we talked about in the episode called The Nearly Impossible Job of Being a Human Being, so much of what sets our course in life is out of our control, right? This is our childhood. Then the job is taking up the reins in adulthood and making lemonade out of lemons. Labels do us no good. Understanding human beings and what they need and how they cope is far more productive. When Whitman wrote, I contain multitudes, he was saying that within him, there was room for every part of himself. Today, we're going to look at the parts of the self how they're formed, and what we can do to both embrace every part of the self and become an authentic, integrated self. All right, let's dive in. The true self is the essence of who we are. We might call it our deepest self, the purest self, the unfiltered, unedited self. It's the part of us that can watch the other parts of us, and we might experience that in meditation or self-observation. Maybe we've used the phrase, it's like I'm watching myself in slow motion, or 
Uh, you know, I observe that I do such and such. Who is the I who's doing the observing? Many people believe that another word for that being that's watching you is your true self. The act of self-reflection requires that we look at ourselves from another observational stance, doesn't it? The true self is the observer who is non-judgmental. And that's important because I will often ask my clients to self-reflect and sometimes the observer is harsh within them. They'll say things like, yeah, that was stupid or I'm just so weak. That is not the true self. That is the critical self. The true self understands those parts. The true self might say, I see how I was trying to be my best there. Or I see how that situation overwhelmed me at the time. The true self is who we are without coping mechanisms covering up our emotions. It's the real authentic heart in each one of us that can feel pain, that can engage and relate with other people without fear. That's an important piece. Some people understand the true self to be the inner child, authentic, spontaneous. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The inner child and the integration of the inner child and the conscious adult is a beautiful way of describing the true self. We're going to talk a lot about integration today, what it means and why it's vitally important for your mental and emotional health. I want you to ask yourself, which of these descriptions of the true self resonates the most with me? Is it the part of me that's unfiltered? Is it the part of me that watches me in self-reflection, in meditation, in self-observation? Is it the part of me that doesn't judge me? Is it the part of me that can see all the parts of me and why and how they function the way they do? Where and when do you feel most yourself? Where and when do you feel most afraid? Where and when do you feel most unafraid? Where and when can you simply be without thinking too much about it? This is where you are your true self. So the question is obvious. How do we go from a true self, which is automatic and authentic in childhood, to a false self, which is layered with fear and shame and it changes us and how we behave, and then back to a true self in adulthood. How do we do that with all of these parts as part of us in our conscious mind? It sounds complicated, doesn't it? Thank goodness Walt Whitman said what he said. I contain multitudes because we all do. And when we try and pretend that we aren't complex layered beings, when the complexity within us rears its beautiful head, we wind up asking, am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. You're layered. Let's keep going. The false self develops for a number of reasons. One is socialization. Okay? This is the process by which we learn to live in social settings, in communities, in our families, work environments, and so on and so forth. The behaviors and patterns that are socialized into us are the ones that generate approval and attention. Okay, so I want you to remember those two words, approval and attention. First, let's look at our home environment. Without conscious intention, parents give children subtle and sometimes not so subtle messages of approval or disapproval. Parents pay attention to certain behaviors. Could be healthy, could be unhealthy. And then they'll pay less attention to other behaviors. 
This approval and attention sends messages to the kids, doesn't it? Who need and want their parents' attention and approval without failure. This is the stuff that bonds children to their parents in socialization, attention and approval. So the subtle or not-so-subtle messages are be this, don't be that, do this, don't do that, and so on. Now, when the child is less than what the parent might expect, whether that's kind or successful in school, popular, accomplished, whatever it is, the child might meet with messages of disapproval. That's understandable. We want to shape our children's behavior and their characters, but they're rarely met with messages of normalization. And what does it mean to normalize something? It means to remind the kid that it's normal. For example, hey, buddy, everybody can be unkind sometimes. Everyone fails a test now and again. Everyone quits something before they finish. Everyone at some point feels angry and needs to be alone. Everyone answers their parents back at some point. Everyone can be selfish sometimes. Now, what this does is incredibly important. Why? Because we are already helping this kid integrate the parts of themselves into the whole at a young age. And you might be thinking, Vanessa, no offense, but I don't want an unkind, selfish, disrespectful quitter of a kid. Okay, I get it, folks. I'm here to tell you. If we want our children to grow up with perfectionistic shame about the mistakes they make in life, keep giving them the false fantasy that they or anyone else can be all good or all bad. This way of seeing people is known as splitting, and it is mentally and emotionally disastrous because it leaves no room for humanity. And if we don't have room to be human, where do we go? Shame fills in the gaps. We are all a lot of things. We can be upstanding and selfish. We can be driven and lazy. We could be clear-minded and emotional, too emotional. We could be focused and scattered. We can be courageous and we can be terrified. We could be empathic and disconnected. All of us. We tend to demonize and shutter out the qualities in other people we dislike most in ourselves. So our first work is always on the self. We need to come to grips with the parts of us that we don't like so we don't wind up splitting the people that we love the most into categories of good and bad. We're human. There is room enough inside of us for multitudes. You know, those parts of us that are less attractive, less wholesome, less mature, less selfless. In psychology, we refer to those parts of us as our shadow. And when we work on integrating those parts of us into our understanding of ourselves, that's called shadow work. Parents have a unique opportunity to start doing that with their kids at a young age. It is human nature to feel ashamed when we mess up. It is divine to have someone say, you know what, it's normal. Moving on. Peer interactions are an enormous part of socialization. By the time we enter school age, we are typically mentally and emotionally ready for a circle of relationships outside our family of origin on the regular. Okay? These relationships, each one that a child forms with another child, comes from its own family of origin with the health or lack of health in that system driving how other people's kids interact with our kids, okay? It's a whole new world 
New rules, new expectations, new dynamics, new systems of approval, attention, reward, all of it's new. What does not change, what is not new, is the human need to belong. So parts of us emerge that may not have ever been present at home. Parts that need attention and approval at school, or whether it's dance classes, sports practice, children's events, all of the above. Are these parts of us authentic that emerge? Probably. New relationships call out different parts of the self because we contain multitudes. Very few of us are one-trick ponies. In fact, I don't know that person. We adapt, we adjust, we connect. The question is, is it healthy? And how do we know if it's healthy? Is the part that is emerging connected to ourselves? And does it connect us to other people in authenticity? When it's healthy, a part of us is emerging that feels like us. It may not come out all the time with everyone, but it still feels native to who we are. I have a friend here in Nashville that gets the best part of my sense of humor. And growing up, I wasn't the joker in my family system. That was actually my second sister, and she is, in fact, hilarious in most moments of life. I love that about her. I was more of the goofball in my family, but not really the joker, not with words, not with wit. And I tell her all the time, I am my funniest around you. I'm not entirely sure why, but with her, my wit comes out. And it's funny because I've always envied people who can see the humor in every situation. And I guess the reason why is I tend to be intense. And I know that's shocking, totally shocking to all of you who are listening right now, but it's true. So I love funny people. I need to be around funny people to shake me out of thinking and, you know, analyzing so much. But this friend brings out this side of me that's interesting. I'm the funny one. Like I said, I don't completely know why that is. I honestly don't want to know. I spend a lot of my time figuring people out and human dynamics out. So when something is pleasant and I don't know why, I let go of the need to know. It's just pleasant. It's enjoyable. And when she's with me, she enjoys it. And when I'm with her, I enjoy it. So I share this to say, healthy means connected. This part of me is very much a part of me. It just comes out mostly with her. Now let's talk about unhealthy parts emerging, okay? Unhealthy parts disconnect us first from the self, our self, and then others. Instead of an expansion of ourselves, which comes from love and safety, as I described above, it's an editing of the self born out of fear. We fear rejection. So we suppress certain parts of us and we perform other parts that might not even be who we are. Maybe we're mimicking. Maybe we've adopted other parts from other people. So we adopt what wins another person approval because we see ourselves with a deficit. When we do this, we still seek belonging, but we are prioritizing belonging to others more than belonging to ourselves. We abandon who we really are to fit in. Now this can be through being outright fake. That means adopting qualities that are just not us. It can also mean silencing our voice, suppressing the parts of us that might rock the boat, turn people off, or create distance. And I will confess to you that two minutes ago, I felt fear describing myself as intense. And I can feel it right now. It's a tightness in my chest. My throat wants to close up a little bit. 
And the reason why is I've carried a lot of shame about that personality trait for years. You know, I grew up hearing, Vanessa, you think too much, you're too sensitive, you're too deep. That was a lot of my childhood. And those criticisms cut me deeply. And it took me years to accept the parts of me that my parents rejected. And even now, it's interesting, I'm aware of a little fear. And the reason why I'm bringing that out is because, number one, I want to be authentic with you. And number two, I want you to hear me push through it. This is what we do when we insist on living our lives with authenticity in our integrity. I also say this to say that I'm 43 years old. I've been a licensed clinician for quite a while. I've done countless thousands of hours of therapy, and I still get a little bit afraid when I talk about a part of myself that I had previously rejected. So our home lives, for better or worse, nurture or block the development of the true self, and the extent to which they do this is the extent of the dysfunction of the family. Peer interactions do the same thing, only this time it's other kids driving the bus. And then there's culture. And culture, my friends, in this day and age when we are flooded with media and technology, which exposes us to more messaging than we can possibly absorb, culture has become almost as imminent and influential as the family of origin. Culture is literally forming identities, and this is staggering from a mental health perspective in both its reality and its implications. And I'm going to dive into why. Identity formation is a normal human healthy process, okay? The most dynamic years of identity formation are adolescence. And it's totally normal for teenagers to try out a lot of different facets of their personality. We all remember this as a teenager. We had one group of friends. We had another group of friends. We tried one look. We tried another look. I remember jumping down the stairs to go to school, looking like a prep one day, all gothed out in black the next, in flowing bohemian peasant blouses and ripped up jeans the next, and then chic in straight lines and tailored garments the next. I mean, I was just trying out different looks. I was expressing myself through clothing. Very normal for a teenager. We might be a cheerleader and then an actor and then an athlete and then sing in the choir and then try the math club. Student government, all normal in adolescence. Okay? Now, I share these things to say that the world of an adolescent used to be pretty small. The pressures and influences came from two streams mostly, family and social life at school. Today, we have an entire online world that is dictating what is acceptable and what isn't. And today, we're accepting influence from people who do not know us, who we do not know personally. These are actors, actresses, athletes, loudmouths in the media, loudmouths in politics, and a new group of identity dictators, God help us, they're called the influencers. The influencers. I mean, at least they're not hiding their intentions. <laughs> Unbelievable. So we're taking in all of this input about who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like, how we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to believe, how we're supposed to identify ourselves. And cultural norms are now a sea of moving targets. So the false self is literally in full swing. Now, it used to be that we couldn't show up in the kitchen wearing a certain thing. You know, it's sort of an American trope. You're not leaving the house in that. Get back upstairs. Well, now we can't show up on a thread on Instagram or Twitter and believe a certain thing. I mean, the worst consequence we got before was we had to go back upstairs to change. Now we're looking at 
incidents of cyberbullying in which people are committing suicide. If someone shares a dissenting viewpoint, it would be much easier to just change our outfit, wouldn't it? So we're pressured to conform, but to what? The false self is standing at attention, waiting for its marching orders. Do we conform to conformity? Do we conform to nonconformity? And yes, my friends, that is a thing. It is totally possible to conform to the mainstream, and it is totally possible to conform to nonconformity. Those who conform to the mainstream definitely seek popularity. They seek acceptance. They wear what they're told to wear. They shop where they're told to shop. They cut their hair the way they're told to cut their hair. The reward is in the absence of conflict and general approval. Those who conform to non-conformity, and we've all seen this, okay, one girl dyes her hair purple and then 15 girls come in with purple dyed hair. There's nothing wrong with purple hair. I actually love purple hair. But someone here was original. And then someone got on board and said, well, that looks cool on her. I'll try it on me. Is that wrong on its face? Absolutely not. But when we're getting to conforming to nonconformity, we are generally seeking approval based on an ideology or dogma, and the price on our identity is high. Why? Because the identity must conform to all tenets of the ideology in entirety or acceptance into the group is rejected. This is true in cultural ideologies. This is true in strict religious ideologies and Here's the wake-up call. It is true in cults. You can't disagree with any part. These arenas of conformity are the result of fear, not freedom and safety. So what emerges from fear is always a false self. Freedom and safety nurtures the true self. Fear nurtures the false self. So in order for people to allow the facets of their true selves to emerge, like my sense of humor with my friend, we need to feel safe. And I'm going to take just a brief moment and talk to the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings that listen to this podcast. And I know my analytics, that's about 40% of you out there, and you really do matter to me. I'm going to talk to you for just one minute. Be wary of following or allowing influence from people you don't know. Be wary of seeking approval in spaces where you cannot be heard if you dissent. Instagram is not safe unless you agree. Twitter is not safe unless you agree. And that is not safety. We have to be sober about this. We are capable of taking huge, sometimes life-altering steps away from our true self due to influences from these sources and these people we don't even know. We don't know their character. We don't know how these people treat other people. We don't know how these people spend their time. We don't know if they have any integrity whatsoever. But we're letting them dictate who we're supposed to be to us. We know nothing except the image they give us in selected images and tweets, and we're conforming to their standards. My friends, that is crazy. Now, the reality is this. The most dangerous and radical thing you can be is yourself. Catherine of Siena, she was a mystic whose writings date back to the 14th century, I love her, said it really well, quote, be who you were born to be and you will set the world on fire. So we've looked at our home environment. We looked at social groups. We've looked at cultural influences and the sources of how the false self is formed. 
I'm going to touch one more area and I have to cover it because I'm a therapist and I'd be totally irresponsible if I didn't. And that area is trauma. Now, the word for what happens to us in trauma, the splitting into parts, is called fragmentation. And it sounds like exactly what it is. The parts of us that are traumatized fragment off from the rest of us for survival. This is like a wounded member of a herd going off somewhere to suffer and die alone. The whole herd can't risk being eaten or harmed or demolished for one wounded part. So the one wounded part, the one wounded animal, separates itself for the sake of the survival of the herd and goes off by itself. When we are wounded through trauma, the wounded self, the part of us that was wounded, does the same thing. It separates off from the whole. It fragments for the sake of the survival of the whole human being. This isn't conscious. It's automatic, just like an animal isn't consciously thinking rationally, well, I guess I better split off because the whole herd is going to be in danger. No, they simply split off out of instinct for survival. We do the same thing. It's an unconscious coping mechanism. We didn't know it was happening when it was happening. We may not know anything about it until symptoms start showing up. Anxiety, depression, they start showing up to let us know something isn't right. Something's not healed. Now think about parts this way. Okay? Imagine it's Friday night, you've had a really grueling work week, and all you want to do, we've all been there, all you want to do is go home, put on some comfy clothes, order some takeout, and veg out in front of a TV. Right? We've all been there. That sounds delicious. But then 4.30 comes around and your best friend sends you a text and it says, hey, a few of us are getting together for happy hour. Really love to see you. Oh, you have a choice now. You might decline and that would be okay. Or you might rally and go and that would also be okay. There are two parts here vying for the moment. The part that declines is the part that sets boundaries, the part that knows what you need, the part that trusts that your friendship can handle a no, the part that knows how to give you some self-love. And then there's the other part, the part that's social, that loves spending time with your friend, that could use a little laughter at the end of a week. So let's assume that you decide to go, not because you feel afraid to say no, but because you rally. You just think to yourself, you know what? I have enough energy left in me. I'm going to go have a good time. So you do what? You show up and you turn it on. You show up with a smile, maybe not, but either way, you're socially available. You're open to a good time. Now, we typically wouldn't walk into this moment dragging our feet, complaining about how tired we are. The tired part stays silent. The fun part is on. Now, this is a totally benign example. What do I mean by benign? I mean, making this choice would not cause us harm in the long run either way. But I'm using it to illustrate a point, and that is this. In this scenario, we chose. In trauma, we don't. The parts of us that are wounded simply disappear from consciousness until they're triggered. Triggers are the flares that the wounded parts of us send up screaming for attention. A trigger could be a breakdown, a panic attack, an anxiety attack, an episode of explosive rage, a feeling of dissociation, completely shutting down. All of these things are triggers. 
We leave the present moment, we leave what's happening right in front of us, and we're totally in the moment in our bodies having a reactive cycle. This is a natural, normal result of trauma. And many things can traumatize us. Let's look at them. The first is abuse. Okay, this is an obvious answer and a tragic situation. The result of abuse means that we split into the parts of us that were abused and the parts of us that weren't abused. Now, this gets tricky and can be very layered because there are parts of us that were nurtured. There were parts of us that were not nurtured. There were parts of us that were discouraged. There were parts of us that were shunned. There were parts of us that got approval. There were parts of us that didn't get approval. And then there were parts of us that were abused. Gentle reminder, you contain multitudes. We all contain multitudes. There's room for all of these parts. The work of adulthood involves figuring them out as those triggers come up. Now, the abused child usually splinters into the following parts. The crying self. This is the part of us that cries at movies. We cry at commercials, weddings. We might even cry seeing animals suffer. All of these moments can tap us into our own pain, and we may or may not even be aware of that, depending on the amount of work we've done. We may be numb. We may live numb for most of the day, most of our weeks, most of our lives, and then we lose it watching a Folgers commercial. So the tears are like an arrow pointing to the crying child. There's pain. This is the part of us that was wounded and feels the pain. There's the angry self. This is the part of us that is self-protective. This part of us can be reactive. It can be triggered into a fight response. This part of us may rise up with angry words, hot emotions, and an impulse to fight. Okay? This is the part of us that was wounded and feels the injustice of the wound. The small self. This part of us plays small to feel safe. We might be intimidated by others. We might be easily intimidated by anger. We may feel insecure. So we make ourselves utterly unthreatening. And what we do, in effect, is we become disempowered. And all of this is to stay out of harm's way. We may shut down. We can be triggered into silence, people-pleasing, or false agreements. This part of us was wounded and feels the fear. There's the strong self. This part of us takes on responsibility and shows no weakness. We may be resourceful unintimidated, brave, even protective of others. Now, this part may be triggered into caretaking others and assuming control of situations just so we don't feel our vulnerability. This part of us was wounded and felt vulnerable in an unsafe situation. Notice how each part, and there are more, but those are the big fragments of the abused, traumatized self. Each part serves a function. Each part is related to the story and emerged as a self-protective energy. The crying part keeps us connected to our heart, even in pain. The angry self keeps us connected to our rights as human beings. The small self keeps us connected to the vulnerable part of us that wants protection and love. And the strong self keeps us connected to our intelligence, strength, and creativity. Every part has a role. The danger of fragmentation is not that the parts emerge. It's in the absence of consciousness about it. Then we're just walking, talking balls of reactivity. Now, once we do the work, 
and we come into conscious awareness of these parts, we can be as loving and as intentional as we are when we decide to go for happy hour with friends. We now have a choice. The consequences of living in the false self without awareness are hugely problematic for our mental and emotional health. Why? Because we're going to feel very disconnected from ourselves, because we are, and then we're going to feel really disconnected from others, and this creates chronic anxiety and chronic loneliness. We can't connect consciously. We can't connect intentionally with the parts of us that are hidden from our own eyes. So we're only giving other people the acceptable parts. The societally, socially, culturally acceptable parts. The other parts, no. They're like the wounded animal on the side of the path left alone. Now, depression may show up as a result, and it shows up as a result of vital wounded parts of us going without love and acceptance for too long. Anxiety may show up as a result because the parts that are trying and dying to be heard are avoided, and we're living in an internal war. The accepted and the rejected parts are at war with each other inside us. And then we start to hear voices in our heads and we think we're crazy. No, we're not crazy. We're conflicted. The bottom line is, if we had to perform or fit into a mold for our parents' approval, we developed a false self. If we sought approval from peers or from authority figures who praised parts of us and rejected other parts of us, we developed a false self. If we have fashioned our lives based on the standards of other people, people we know but they're not us, or people we don't know, figures in media and social media, we have developed a false self. And if we went through trauma in which parts of us were mildly or severely wounded, we developed a false self. I mentioned abuse as a cause of trauma. There are more. Death, abandonment, divorce, natural disasters, disease. These are all, all causes of trauma. The result is fragmentation. We've all been through one or all of the above. Friends, we all developed a false self. We all have turned up the volume on certain parts of us and turned down the volume on other parts of us. It's normal. You're normal. But what do we do about it? Well, what we need is integration. What is integration? It's a slow, loving, careful process of bringing all of these various parts of ourselves together, but this time we do it in our conscious mind. There are walls between every part of us, and those walls keep us from seeing those parts clearly. And what are those walls made of? Shame is the bricks and fear is the mortar, and only time and love will take them down. Remember, we're not blaming the lettuce around here. If you don't know what I mean by that, listen to last week's podcast. In this community, we don't blame the lettuce. We look at the conditions. Our minds and hearts are doing what they needed and need to do to survive. And instead of blaming ourselves for survival mechanisms and then lack of thriving, we need to consider our history and consider our current conditions then decide if the lettuce should be growing or if it's understandable that the lettuce is a little wilted. So when my clients ask me, am I crazy? I understand where the question comes from. You know, a little while ago, I was dealing with a part of me I truly hated. I'll be honest with you. I didn't understand it, and I hated this part of me. And it was a very aggressive, angry, self-protective part. Now, this part of me developed in my family of origin to withstand the teasing that I got from my siblings and my parents, and the harsh discipline that I received in my home. This part of me really showed up when I moved to New York City. New York is a tough town and only the strong survive. Now, I am actually a very sensitive and creative person in my heart. 
Artistic people are often very sensitive souls because the sensitivity required to take in the environment and create art out of it predisposes artistic people to be sensitive in other areas of life as well. It's not just sensitivity when we create art and then everywhere else we have a thicker skin. That sensitivity sort of stays with us. But that part of me, that was as much a part of me as my brown eyes, I couldn't access it. It had been shamed into the deepest part of me. So what was showing up was this tough, aggressive, sometimes a know-it-all personality. And I never, ever felt safe enough in New York to let this part of me out. I got by, but my relationships showed it. I wasn't deeply connected. I could feel more than I could say, and I could feel more than I could show. I wasn't really attaching, and it's because my heart wasn't present. So a few years ago, I decided to come to terms with this aggressive, self-protective, angry part of me. And I sat down in a coffee shop with my journal, and I started talking to her, this part of me. And this part of me feels like she's about 24 years old. She's kind of at the pinnacle of her young adult years in New York. And I started asking her questions like, why do you show up when you show up? Why are you so angry? What do you want? What do you need? When did you first appear and why? And I'll never forget one answer that emerged from within me when I asked this 24-year-old angry woman inside of me, what function do you serve? And she said to me, Who do you think protects little Vanessa? Friends, I was stunned. There were tears flowing from my eyes as I looked out on Centennial Park. I was sitting in the Barnes & Noble on West End Avenue. The natives around here know where that is. And I looked out at Centennial Park and it just hit me. This is the protector. This is the one who rises up to keep the baby safe. And I got it. So I had a therapy appointment shortly after that, and I remember reading this part of my journal to my therapist. I read it straight to him, verbatim. And I looked up really fearfully, but bravely asked the same question. And I said, do I sound crazy? And my seasoned, wise, older therapist just smiled at me and said, you sound healthy. Friends, integration takes time and it takes energy. But the self-knowledge, the self-love, and the compassion that emerges when we go down the path of integration is worth it. We need to stop asking ourselves and other people if we're good or bad. We need to stop asking, am I crazy? Asking if we're good or bad is a dead-end question that leads us to dead-end answers. If we say good, we have nowhere to go, and if we say bad, we have nowhere to go. A better question is this, what purpose does this part of me serve? The part that hides, the part that judges, the part that people pleases, the part that works itself to the bone, the part that tries to stand out and win approval, the part that only feels safe when we're alone, the part that desperately tries to fit in, the part that's always seeking pleasure, the part that needs to be in control. All of these parts of us, we ask them, what purpose do you serve? What are you doing for me? And then through understanding and acceptance, we integrate that part into the whole and we become whole and whole is not crazy. Thanks for listening today. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. A few of you have done that and it just means the world. It also ups our ratings, which is a really good thing. 
If you really like what you hear, consider writing a review. And here's how you do this. If you scroll down on the podcast, you're going to see the review section. There's a little link in purple that says write a review. Please feel free to do so. Please keep sharing this podcast if the content resonates with you. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be with you again in a week. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. This week, let yourself accept the reality that you, my friend, you contain multitudes. That is who you truly are and learn to love each and every part. Thanks again. I'll see you in a week. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino Podcast.